It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is a professor of communication studies at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. She is a transnational Korean adoptee who recently published her book, In Reunion Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Communication of Family. Dr. Sarah Dokan Morgan earned her PhD from the University of Washington and joins me today for a conversation about a part of her relinquishment adoption search and reunion journey. As a researcher, Sarah has been published in a host of journals, quarterlies, and in other edited volumes. She teaches courses about how communication shapes and is shaped by interpersonal relationships and identity. We discuss why saying communication plays a big part in relationships can better be stated as communication is the relationship. Sarah further explains how communication in interpersonal relationships intention doesn't always match interpretation. She describes during our time together how being unprepared for unexpected news from an adoption agency left her feeling shocked and bewildered. The cookie-cutter narrative told to many Korean adoptees by their adoptive parents during an era decades ago was exposed as Sarah learned more to her story. As a communication scholar, she provides us with valuable information when it comes to the subject of transnational adoption. Allow me to introduce to you a wife, a mother of three biological children who resides in Minnesota. She's returned to her motherland to live for a time and been devoted to learning her Korean culture. Sarah is of the belief that all research is semi-biographical. She hopes that her findings unveiled in the pages of her book will create space for more conversations about identity, belonging, and family. Well, hello there, Sarah. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well and been anticipating this time with you. Uh, we met in May of 2023, and you were working, still working feverishly, I'm sure, on the publication of your book. Now it's out there. Yeah, people were getting it in the mail if they pre-ordered it around Christmas time. But then the official publication date is January 4th, which is, is that today? Yes. Today, yeah. So today is actually the official publication date, but people have been getting it for a few weeks, which is exciting. 
I'm so happy I have it and I'm going to dive into it. And I know it's going to be so good because you weave in your journey along with other transnational Korean adoptees. Yeah, I really wanted to fuse in some ways storytelling with the research part. Since I started doing research on Korean adoptees back in 2000, you know, 2004 was when I started my PhD. I always wanted to write research that was accessible to the people who I am studying and write research that was relevant and that had what scholars call praxis, that it was something that would be useful to improving in somehow people's lives or at least aimed at being useful. And so when I was writing the book, I also wanted to incorporate my own story, partially through my love of not just creative memoir-based essay writing, but also I thought that it would be engaging for readers to know how I am, how my story fits in relation to what I study. And so that was fun and challenging. And I think it helped me in some ways process how I'm coming at the material too. Mm. Because whenever I read, whenever I read research, I always think, well, how did the researcher come to this topic? Or what's their relationship to the topic? And so there's always some type of personal connection, not necessarily that they have that experience or involved in that community, but there's some type of connection. Someone once said, and I can't remember who, but all research is semi-autobiographical. Mm. And and people are often trained even now to do research to, you know, not use the pronoun I and to sound objective. And for a long time that was how research was kind of valued as good research if the researcher sounded objective. But for me, I really think that quote is resonant, that all research is semi-autobiographical. And so for this book, I wanted to incorporate some of my story so that people knew who they were reading. Yeah. I like that. And congratulations on (laughs) such a big accomplishment. Thank you very much. It's hard to believe. Let me let the listeners know that you're a professor of communication studies at the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, and you earn your PhD from the University of Washington. And your research has been published in Adoption Quarterly, the Journal of Family Communication, the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, Communication Quarterly, Family Relations, in the Journal of Korean Adoption Studies, as well as in edited volumes. Boy, that's also impressive. (laughs) Thank you. And, and, you know, we talked a couple of times before now, and one of the things that really stood out to me, oh, first of all, I got to say the title of your book. I do apologize. No, it's all good. Yes, In Reunion, Transnational Korean Adoptees, and the communication of family. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so when we talked uh, on two occasions before about the research you've done in the field of communication, I was just in awe uh, because, as I said to you, communication plays a big part in relationships. And you said communication is the relationship. And I just, like, I just paused like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And something else you shared that stuck with me, and I've been sharing it with people, you said intention does not always match interpretation. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about the work you've done in this field and, and whatever you want to share about it, because communication is so important. I think that I should situate it a little bit, but this idea that communication is the relationship in some ways is actually a fairly Western idea. But since we're talking about adoption in a Western context, I think it makes sense to think about it in that way, that if people perceive that they have a good relationship or a close relationship. It's the communication. It's the messages between the two people that make it a good relationship. Conversely, if you think of people who say, oh, I don't have a relationship with my father anymore or with my brother anymore or fill in the blank, it usually means that people don't communicate with that person or don't communicate in a meaningful or regular way with that person. And so in a lot of ways, no communication equals no relationship. Now for people who are Korean, for example, in my research, what it seems like is that for Korean people, the blood relationship is the relationship in many ways. And so Even if someone hasn't seen their birth family or met them before, especially older generations think, well, you're still my daughter. And the Korean person might say, well, I'm not really exactly your daughter anymore because you don't know me. And the desire to know someone and be known and to be able to share intimate information or personal information, that's a real hallmark of what we think of as a close relationship in Western cultures. And so um, definitely Americans and Westerners tend to think a close relationship is characterized by communication and communication characterizes a close relationship. In addition, you know, this idea that interpretation doesn't match intention. I think that we've all experienced this many times where someone has said something to us and we found it hurtful or offensive or something not positive. And the person will say, well, I didn't mean that. And so that perhaps benign or innocent or well-intentioned comment can still be really hurtful. And we've also all been on the other side of that where we say or do something to someone else and you know, have no idea that it's going to have a certain impact on them, uh, that they're going to interpret it in a certain way. And so I think that that those two things in a lot of way are at the heart of what makes studying communication really, really interesting, at least to me, is this idea that communication is a relationship and also that interpretation doesn't always match intention for sure. 
Yeah, that was so good. And it just took me back to countless experiences where my intentions did not match what the person was interpreting. And it was only through further communication that we were able to to recognize that, you know, rather than go away from one another thinking two different things. So to hear you say that, that's been my experience that totally resonated with me. And, and that keeping the lines of communication going, whether we're talking about um, in reunion with biological family members, creates the opportunity to better understand or for the, the listener to interpret what the speaker intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or at least try. And I think, you know, I talk with my students about some of the research on apologies in relationships. And we, you know, in conversation with my students, talk about, I say, how many of you have trouble apologizing? And, you know, over half have difficulty apologizing, you know, and I say, why? And they say, well, because I didn't mean to do what I did. So I don't think I need to apologize. But if you think about people you have close relationships with, you never mean to hurt them. You know, most of the, you know, in the great vast majority of cases, you don't mean to do something hurtful or inconsiderate or whatever, but then it's interpreted in that way. And I think that that's why that intention interpretation discrepancy is a lot of the times why people act defensively when they've hurt somebody else or why they have difficulty apologizing because if they didn't intend to do it, that they feel like they shouldn't necessarily be held responsible for the hurt or confusion it caused. Right. Yeah. So back to your book, Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you want to share and wherever you want to start about your relinquishment and adoption journey, because I know quite of it is in the book and you want the reader to get the book. We want, we want your book to <laughs> do very well. And so I'm just thinking, what is it that you would want to share on here to pique the interest of the listener about your story? I just start each chapter basically with a little brief glimpse into my story And so I don't go into a ton of detail. So I can definitely share some things about it. So I was adopted at the age of four months and raised in North and South Dakota by my mom and dad and also my two older sisters who are six and 10 years older than I am. And like many Korean adoptions at that time, I would say all Korean transnational adoptions at that time, it was a closed adoption. And my records say that I was found on the doorstep of a police station in Seoul. And so all growing up, if I asked about my birth family, which wasn't very often, I was told, well, you were left on the police station doorstep in Seoul with your name and birth date pinned to your clothing. Your parents were very poor. That's why they couldn't take care of you. And so there's not really any way to find them. And I think that in retrospect, that in 
provided my parents, although I've never had a chance to talk with them about this because they died in 2003, my mother in 2003 and my father in 2008, that in some ways the closed adoption provided them some comfort that they didn't feel like they had to worry about my birth family. Then in 2001, I received a phone call. It was actually a message. This is back when people had answering machines at home, they, back when people had landlines. That was from my adoption agency in Minnesota. And they said, hey, you know, we're just calling with some information on your birth family. And, you know, could you please call us back? And I was really stunned because I hadn't initiated a search. My birth family wasn't really on my radar because I had just kind of believed the narrative that most adoptees are taught, which is that your birth family couldn't take care of you. Your adoptive family is your real family and everything worked out for the best. And so you know, I was always busy with school or college or graduate degrees and, you know, friendships and relationships. And so my adoption and my birth family hadn't been on my radar. And so to receive this message was really just shocking and kind of bewildering, I think is probably the best word to describe it. I just felt bewildered, I think, capturing that sense of shock, but also just confusion that throws you off balance. And so at that time, I exchanged a few letters with my family. I learned that I had, you know, a mother and a sister and two brothers in Korea. And we exchanged a couple of letters. But because I hadn't been in that place of looking or seeking, and also at that time, my mom in the U.S. was very sick, I felt unprepared. And I was also in a really sort of transitional place in my life. It was between my master's degree and PhD. And I was just trying to figure out life, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. We exchanged a few letters and I just kind of left it there. Mm -hmm. uh, I would pull out the pictures once in a while and look at them. But I just needed time, you know, and in, in retrospect, too, I kind of regret that because I have since reunited. I met them in 2009 for the first time, started corresponding, I think in 2007, six or seven via email. Now this is but your birth mom this, and siblings. This is birth mom and siblings. Okay. And it usually went through my young, my brother, who's the closest in age to me. All my siblings are older, okay. but we started corresponding via email probably in 2006 and then met in 2009. But I, in retrospect, kind of, re you know, regret not meeting them sooner because I do now have a close relationship with them and really love and value them. But I think if I'm being compassionate to myself, I just realized that I wasn't ready then. Yeah, you use the word unprepared. I totally get that. And mm -hmm. being shocked and bewildered yeah you'd have to take a moment yeah I was teaching part-time and waitressing and living in California and then I was doing you know moving and doing my PhD when my mother died that also threw me off for a couple of years too mm -hmm. so 
there was just just a lot going on. And so even though I feel like I missed out on some time that I could have known them, I also think that we have so many parts of our identities, not just for me being Korean adopted, but also having that identity of being in my 20s and trying to figure things out and being a daughter and being a daughter who had just lost her mother and, you know, all of these things. And then my dad died in 2008, uh, very unexpectedly. And so, yeah, there was just a lot going, going on. And I got married during that time too. So it's life. And that's, I think, a really important thing to think about as well. When we think about reunion, it's not as if the rest of our life is put on pause because of reunion. And sometimes we don't, we don't have the capacity to process or prepare or visit even or do these things that we would be able to do in ideal circumstances. So I think that's important to remember as well. That was so well said. All the, all of that that you said. <laughs> and I've often thought what would have happened if my birth family had been searching for me. Well, my birth mother was, but it's unlikely that she would have ever found me because my name was changed. But I often wonder, in mm-hmm. my 20s, in the middle of the 90s, and I had got a knock at the door or a letter or any s- sort of correspondence about your birth family, Uh, is interested in seeing you, like how that would have landed for me, because there was a lot going on, as you say, already in my life Mm -hmm. during the time that I learned that that my birth mother was searching for me. And then she only lived two years um, Mm. after she had started this search. And how would that have landed? Because like you say, there was a lot of loss going Mm -hmm. on in our lives because that's just a part of life. Mm -hmm. whether we're talking adoptive parents or just people we're close to. And and then reunion, yeah, that's more, that's like added layers to what's already going on. And and I think I would have felt the same way, very unprepared, because it wouldn't be until like 2009, after both adoptive parents are deceased, that I say, I'm going to search. So... Mm-hmm. Clearly, I felt prepared, right? Because I'm taking it right. on now, and in 20 years before that, I was was not prepared. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Sure. Yeah, being in reunion, which is so different from the search. Well, I want to go back. I want to go back to something because I've mm-hmm. heard many Korean transnational, transracial, interracial adoptees say that they were given this narrative and and it seems like this narrative is so like the same like i'm wondering were agencies <laughs> like yeah was this like okay this is just what we're going to tell adoptive parents or this is what they tell adoptive parents just to say this what are your thoughts yeah oh absolutely it's very cookie cutter i think if you talk to most adoptees korean transnational adoptees who are adopted probably through the 80s would have those types of stories that the baby was relinquished and there was a note with their name and birthday on their clothing and that the birth parents are unknown. Sujin Pate and Hosu Kim and others have written about it, uh, this creation of an orphan. 
this idea that adoption agencies knew that these children had families. And in some cases, adoption agencies went out talking to families and saying, hey, we think you should relinquish your youngest child because you're poor and you're a single mother and all of these things. And so they would actually talk some of them into relinquishing their child. But then it would be said on the paperwork, you know, to create an orphan, the child needed to be listed as an orphan, even though the family was known. And so that was the most confounding thing to me was that my family could just walk into the adoption agency in Seoul and say, hey, we want to contact her. And they say, okay, we'll contact the agency in Minneapolis and we'll give her a call. It seemed so almost ludicrous that could happen. And so I have heard many people with the same story. And I even question on my paperwork, it said Uri Police Station, W-O-O-R-I, which translates into our police station. So it says she was left on the doorstep of Uri Police Station in Seoul. As far as I know, that wouldn't make any sense. There wouldn't be a police station named our police station in in a city. They would have numbers or identifiers or other things like that. But to prospective adoptive parents and adoptive parents who don't speak any Korean, you know, and we're talking about the 1970s, they wouldn't know any difference. They say Woody Police Station and they think, oh, okay, great. But it would be like saying the child was left at our police station in Chicago, right? That doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And, And I was adopted at a time where there were basically flights that were filled with airplanes that were filled with babies and they were brought to the U.S. So I came on a plane with dozens of other babies and they were brought off the plane and my parents and other adoptive parents waited at the gate and the babies were brought off each by a different, you know, agency worker Mm. and handed to the children as they waited. Right. So there was no way for parents at that time, they weren't required to go to the country and see where their child grew up and to, and to see where they may have been left. So, yes. So that's why I think it was very convenient for adoption agencies to put forth this narrative. Yeah. And just hearing you say create an orphan Mm -hmm. seems criminal to me. Yeah. It just seems so wrong. Yeah. I've heard it over and over again. Like you say, like this cookie cutter narrative as if, our beginnings aren't important to us. You know, it's not that big of a deal what really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that, you know, Jody Kim and Lisa Ulrim Showbloom, she has written also about this idea that the creation of the orphan, right, and this idea that children who had pasts and who had histories were treated as though they were born, that their life began on the airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I hear that, yeah, it's heartbreaking to me. And, you know, I appreciate you spending some time talking about that because I don't know if I've ever heard it said that way, create an orphan. I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have. Yeah, I appreciate 
us taking some time here to hold space for that. It's sad. It's sad to me. It's so sad. And it's sad for the families, too, because they effectively were erased. And so it was very easy then, I think, for many adoptive parents to either dehumanize the birth families and just think, oh, those poor people or those that single mother, and they were kind of nameless, mm-hmm. instead of considering that story as a part of their adopted child's life and considering it as something that was lost. Right. And so, yeah, but I mean, all of this was before the work of so many great scholars who have brought these kind of things to light. And that's only, you know, a lot of that has been in the past, probably 15 ish years, a lot of that work. So a lot of the knowledge that I have with regard to those things is, is due to other scholars, many of them Korean or Korean adoptees who have brought this information to light. Yeah, I noticed you cite quite a few scholars uh, so far in in reading your books. I'm so glad you wrote it. I think it's going to be just a tremendous resource for so many people and, and for so many reasons. So I wanted to talk a little bit about you moving to Korea from 2016 mm-hmm. to 2018. What was that like? Mm-hmm. It was really good. It was hard in some ways, but it was really good. I was granted a Fulbright Scholar Award, which allowed me to teach in Korea at a university for a year. And then we extended our stay for another year because my husband is also a professor. And so he was able to get a sabbatical for our second year. And I was able to get a leave of absence for a year to continue teaching there. So in terms of the birth family piece, that was really excellent. And so meaningful in many ways because it made our presence more common to my birth family. And so instead of it being this big event, we were able to see one another much more regularly. And that's, I think, in some ways, one of the hallmarks of what feels like a family relationship is just like, hey, stop buying to say hi, you know, stopping by to say hi, and then leaving. We were really lucky in the sense my brother, my youngest, my younger older brother, he just lived a 10 minute walk from our apartment, which was assigned by the university where I was teaching. So it was completely luck, but he was able to just stop by on his way home from work. He would bring the kids snacks from the local convenience store and hang out and play for 30 to 45 minutes and then he'd say okay bye you know (laughs) I'm smiling over here that's great so that was really wonderful or we could see you know my older sister my oldest brother lived a little bit far away but we still got to see him regularly as well but we could just you know go to a park or have dinner together and then nobody would be crying you know we went back we were going to go back much sooner, but due to the pandemic, we were delayed, but we went back this past summer to Korea. And, you know, I see my sister for the first time in five years and we're both crying, you know, and then 
we leave and then everybody's crying. And so it's, it's hard. Those big hellos and those good, big goodbyes are hard. And when we lived in Korea, it was really nice. It still felt really special, but it also felt every day. And that was wonderful. The other thing that was great was that it really imprinted on our kids that they have family in Korea because they were able to spend a lot of time with their Korean aunt and uncles and their cousins and just feel so much love for them and from them. And so when my children talk about extended family now, they will say, okay, um, how many cousins do we have? And we count my uh, my sisters here and their kids. And then we count their cousins and aunts and uncles in Korea. And they count their cousins and aunts and uncles who are on their dad's side uh, who live in California. And so it's very, very normal to them to go to Korea and to see family there. They associate Korea with family. Right. That so sounds, that was great. Yeah, that sounds so nice. So that was great. From the uh, personal day-to-day part of living in Korea, so much of it was great. You know, obviously the food is great and being around Korean people and seeing Korean faces everywhere I go is great. I also took some Korean while I was there. I wasn't able to do an intensive Korean study like a lot of adoptees do at a university. I went to kind of like a hagwon or a a Korean language school a few times a week. It was good in the sense that I increased my language skills from basically zero to one (laughs) on a scale of one to 10 or maybe a scale of one to a hundred. I'd say I'm still a one, but it also made me realize what a steep climb it would be for me to actually learn Korean in a way that I could speak it in a more conversational way and that my ability to be able to speak it in a way that expresses complex thoughts, which are often what I have <laughs> when I'm in with my birth family, uh, that is harder. And it made me realize that that might be impossible in some ways. Yeah. Well, I think to it it's always a matter of just being aware like mm-hmm. yeah once we look into something research it or try our hand at it i know for me if i do come to the conclusion that this might be a little harder than i thought at least i'm aware of it and yes. it still doesn't mean it's impossible but i have a level of awareness of yeah what what it entails yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think I always had it on my mind that someday I would learn Korean. But I think I was naive in thinking that learning Korean has an end point. (laughs) You know, that, you know, like learning to ice skate, you can, you can, I mean, I guess that's, that could always have an improvement point too. But in terms of what I would want to be able to convey in Korean, I'm still a long ways away from there. And, and and the other thing about living in Korea that was challenging was that I was learning to speak Korean, and so I would try to use it 
a lot. And that takes a lot of effort. And I remember when we would go to restaurants, I would always kind of practice in my head before we walked in, like, like five people, we have five people, you know, to say to the person seating us. And when we came back to the U.S., I remember we were going out to eat and I, I was able to just say five people and without thinking. And I was like, oh, that was so easy. You know, that was so, so nice. So I think that also living in Korea takes a lot of effort. And for me, and I've talked to other adoptees who have said this too, you also feel, I think, especially as a woman, a sense of hyper-awareness of how you're acting and how you look because Korean women tend to always look nice (laughs) even if they're picking their kids up from school they'll have their hair done and they have their makeup done and they have nice clothes on and so if you don't you feel like you look kind of sloppy or Korean women tend to in some ways act in the way that they just carry their bodies or they don't seem to do clumsy things like American people do or laugh too loud or things like that, that one feels, especially I think as a woman, a sense of hypervigilance of oneself and one's body that, that they may not feel in the U S but then in the U S they also might feel or wherever their birth country or wherever their adoptive country might be, a different type of awareness. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. So as an author, how does it feel to be on the other side of, of writing your book? It feels good. Um, it's a really long process. I started working on the research for the book in 2010. So that's a really long time. And then I finished the interviews in 2020. And then... I engaged in the writing process of the book from 21 to 22. And then after that, it was edits and publication work and all those things. Um, And so it's a really, really long process, but I am excited. I just hope that it's helpful to transnational adoptees in reunion. And I hope that we can be in conversation about it. I've heard from a couple people who have read it and have you know given me positive feedback so I look forward to that part as a conversation but I also feel a bit apprehensive I guess uh, because the book is so close to my heart I think I feel a bit vulnerable now that it's out in the world and so that part is a little bit scary but I try to remind myself that nothing is gained if we don't take risks and that there are so many creative things that I have loved and have meant so much to me over the years, whether it's poetry or visual art or music or, you know, writing and all of those people took a risk and put that out in the world and that it meant something to me and changed me, even if I didn't ever contact them. And so I'm just hopeful that it has a positive impact on some people and in their relationships. I'm excited. I'm nervous and hopeful. Well, I'm excited for you. And as Brene Brown would say, you're in the arena. 
you you are oh. in the arena, right? And so that, like that. yeah, it is scary. I know mm-hmm. what you mean. And yet, that's where some of the most meaningful experiences and contributions happen. I'll be sure and include in the show notes where listeners can get a copy of your book, In Reunion, Transnational Korean Adoptees and the Communication of Family. And I understand you're going to read something today. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm going to read the beginning of chapter one. And this basically picks up after I listened to the voicemail from my adoption agency. It takes place in the fall of 2001. The first person I called after listening to the message from my adoption agency was my dad, my adoptive dad, who lived in South Dakota. I wanted to know how the adoption agency had gotten my number in California, where I was living at the time, and also if they had told him anything else. He answered the phone as if he were expecting my call. Yes, he had given them my number. What should I do? I asked. I was looking for guidance, but perhaps equally hoping for permission to be curious, to ask questions to engage with my birth family. I can't tell you what to do. It's your life, he said. I detected passive aggression in his words, but that wasn't his style. My dad was direct and rational, both to a fault. Before I had the chance to register my confusion or frustration, he added, they said this would never happen. You're ours now. His words and tone were so uncharacteristic that the room around me seemed to tilt. Typical of men his generation and status, my dad never expressed insecurity, and his parenting style had always been practical. He gifted us, his daughters, windshield wiper blades, luggage, and tool sets for Christmas and graduations. He told us that he loved us, but he was more comfortable expressing his love using other words. I put gas in your car, or does that job come with health insurance? At times, I had longed for clear expressions of his care. This conversation was the first time I heard him convey any sense of possessiveness over me or anyone else. I found it both reassuring and unsettling. I had been his daughter for 25 years, since I was four months old. Yet, one message from my family in Korea sparked fear that he would lose me. His reaction reaffirmed what I already knew. This topic, my birth family, and my feelings or questions about them was off-limits. Although I didn't realize it at the time, my dad's response to my birth family's outreach is illustrative of much more than his personality, our relationship, or the situation. Rather, his possessiveness is understandable given the way that adoption had been marketed to prospective adoptive parents of Korean children as a way to give a needy child with, quote, parents unknown, a home. At a time when the nuclear family was still considered sacred and ideal, an adoptee's full incorporation into an adoptive family necessitated a deliberate erasure of the biological family, a process that, unbeknownst to adoptive parents, was common practice in Korea. But, as I would learn later, this erasure was one-sided. It was much easier for adoptive parents to omit birth parents from a child's history than for birth parents to forget a child that they lost. At the time, I also wondered how it was possible that my Korean family could simply talk with someone at my Korean adoption agency and ask for me to be contacted. And then hours or days later, I would receive a phone call from my American adoption agency. 
The undoing of my life history seemed almost laughably simple. Years later, I would learn that my adoptive parents had sent photos of me as a toddler to my American adoption agency and that my Korean family had received them and kept them in an album for many years. I still don't know if my adoptive parents knew that the photos were circulated to my Korean family. Regardless, my adoption agency always knew who my Korean family was, yet they allowed my American family and me to believe I had been found out in the doorstep of the police station and that my birth parents were unknown. Many adoptees I have spoken with share similar stories of falsified adoption records and learn the true story of their relinquishment only after reuniting. These stories often involve birth mothers either not willingly relinquishing their children for adoption or doing so only under great duress. Korean adoptee stories of reunion, mine included, reflect a broader history of war, gendered oppression, national poverty, and economic recovery. Wow, you covered so much in there. A lot of it, what we talked about earlier, right? The heartbreaking Mm -hmm. fact that coercion went on and just this total disregard for biological family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for reading. reading Sure. No problem. As we prepare to wrap up, and I think about when authors publish, and certainly you have to get the word out there that you've, you've mm-hmm. done this work and it's, it's available as a valuable resource. How has that been for you? Has it been rewarding and or challenging being better connected to the adoption community? Well, I think, first of all, in terms of my personality, publicizing things that I have done is really uncomfortable for me. And so whether it's sharing things on, you know, Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be and saying, Hey, I did this or that kind of stuff is really not something that comes naturally to me, nor does networking as people talk about networking face to face. I've always been kind of a terrible conference goer because I go to a conference and I present whatever it is that I've been accepted to present and I go to sessions, but I'm not someone who would go up and talk to the presenters after usually. I think that it was especially in my early days as a graduate student and as a young faculty member felt like, oh, they probably wouldn't want to talk to me. You know, I'm not not anything, you know, well-known or special Then just kind of wanted to give them their space. And so then that just became a habit. But I think that putting myself out there, like I was talking before, is definitely challenging. I think that hopefully this project, and it will inevitably, will help me to get better at that skill because it is an important one. And I am someone who likes talking with people and consider myself a friendly introvert. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so I look forward, I look forward to that. Did that answer your question? It does. And I love that a friendly introvert, because I think that's Mm -hmm. what I am too. I'm definitely not an Mm -hmm. extrovert. 
And I do think I'm pretty friendly. So I'm going to have to borrow that. <laughs> <laughs> you can borrow anything. Well, you absolutely um, yeah. are friendly and a joy each time we talk. And I'm just happy to connect with you for this latest project, your your book, and in other things, you know, other anything you want to share with my listeners, I'm happy for us to co-create that. So just so you know, yeah. you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me and for creating this space for these types of conversations and for your sharing your story as well. So I just really, really appreciate you. So thank you. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share? Hmm. I think that having spoken to a lot of adoptees over the years, I think the important thing for people to know is that they're not alone. I think that on one hand, everybody's experience is unique and their own. And at the same time, so many of the struggles and challenges that adoptees experience, whether it's with regard to relationships in their adoptive family or relationships with romantic partners or relationships with their birth families, so many of the things that people experience are actually shared experiences. And so I think that that's really important and something to help normalize the adoptee experience because I think often people feel like they don't have a place within the adoptee community too. Like they think there's a way to be a good adoptee or a good Korean transnational adoptee or whatever it might be, whether those sort of tropes are perpetuated by adoptive parents or adoption agencies or even, you know, inadvertently people in the communities themselves. And so I think there are so many ways to be and that people, adoptees, ought to try to be gentle on themselves. And this is something that I have to remind myself too. Yeah, I have to remind myself as well. And that's a perfect way for us to wrap up here. And thank you so much for taking the time out to have this conversation with me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One of my favorite topics to discuss is the power of communication. I even studied it for a period of time during my undergraduate studies and found it to be the single most useful skill to develop for a lifetime. I know that in reunion, it can never be overrated in navigating how well or not so well everyone is relating to each other. I appreciated Sarah's explanation of Western culture being the desire to know someone and be known is a real hallmark of what we think of as a close relationship. Americans tend to think that a close relationship is characterized by communication and communication characterizes a close relationship. It's no wonder that adoptees newly or over time in reunion with bio family who we have no history with can be a real challenge. It resonates with me that when a search isn't initiated by an adoptee, 
it might come as a complete surprise. Something out of our radar can be a breeding ground for confusion. It can throw anyone on tilt and necessitate time to process the situation. The more I hear from transnational, transracial, or interracial adoptees, I want to always hold space for their heartbreaking experience of being stripped of their culture and identity. As this group of adoptees have come forth and shared their narrative, I believe some ideas have moved in the direction of change over the past few decades for the better as it relates to what I call criminal activity of creating an orphan to facilitate an adoption. Thank you, Sarah, for having this conversation with me. I was honored for you to read your words. It was a perfect way to introduce some of what readers can expect from your book, In Reunion. In closing, I want to read a portion from the back cover that Elizabeth A. Sutter, professor of communication studies at the University of Denver, so eloquently wrote in praise of you. Sarah Dokan Morgan artfully interweaves her story with the stories of other Korean adoptees to unveil complexities and beauties of being in reunion. In Reunion is a must-read for adoptees, adoptive parents, scholars, and all who work with and support the transnational adoption constellation. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.